All right. How's everybody tonight? Good. Good? Having a good week? Yeah? You all right, Joe? Awesome. Oh, there's a lot of people back there. Sorry, I pray for like 20 minutes. That's who I am. <laughs> um, if you have your Bibles, which you should, if you don't, there's a couple back there. Um, you probably have one on your phone and you didn't even know it. But if you would, go ahead and turn in them to Acts chapter 17. My name's Jeremy Lucarelli. I'm pumped and excited that you're here. Um, we, we do this crazy thing when we get together and Actually, we do a couple crazy things that a lot of people aren't accustomed to. We pray, which is pretty cool, and we also open God's Word. It's not just you coming to hear a bunch of stories, funny things, um, funny things that have happened in my life, and then I tell you um, a short little scripture at the end. We're actually going to unpack scripture together tonight. Um, for those of you that have not been here, I'm sorry for those of you that have been here like every week. You're so sick of hearing me say this. But for those of you that are new, we're doing this thing called the Acts Challenge where we've said, okay, if we want to be the people of God, if we want to be a, a community that is embracing the gospel and also taking the gospel to other people, then we need to know the word. We need to get our hands dirty in the word of God with each other. So we, like 50 or 60 days ago, said, all right, let's study the word of God 15, 20, 30 minutes a day sometimes, and let's get our hands dirty, let's look at what the Word says, let's unpack it a little bit on our own, and then when we come together on Wednesday nights, we're going to simply discuss the text. We're going to observe what the text says throughout the week, we're going to try to figure out what it means on our own and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then when we come together on Wednesday nights, we're going to say, okay, here's what the text says, and then boom, here's how it applies to my life. Here's how it is made real in my life. Here's how something that happens 2,000 years ago is then interjected into my context, my social setting, my life, my family today. And God has been wrecking some people. God has been doing some huge things in people's lives as we've been looking at the book of Acts and as we've been seeing that the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that was back there, is available for us today. The same spirit of witness that man motivated these guys to live the gospel with each other. It's the same spirit today. And so what we've determined as we've studied the word together is if this is what gospel community, if this is what gospel living looks like, and we use that as a lens to look at the world around us and the church around us and our church and our community within the church, then there are some huge inconsistencies. There are some huge traditions and things we're looking at and we're upholding traditions and not going to allowing the word of God to determine what we do, why we do it, when we do it, and all of those things. And so we've been studying. God has lamb blasted some of us. God continues to lamb blast me because each week that I teach, each week that I bring this stuff to you, it's like the swarm happens in my life where it's like, are you going to live what you're going to tell these guys to teach tonight? So for those of you that, were, that are new here, I've said that eight times, just kind of hold your ears for a second. I want to jump back to what we talked about last week for a second. If you were here last week, great. If you weren't, get the podcast later, okay? Last week, does anybody remember what we talked about? Paul and Timothy. Awesome, Ben. What about Paul and Timothy?
Yeah, we jumped from Acts 16, 1 to 3, and we went like overdrive because I had a lot of coffee that day, and we went through all of these passages where Paul develops Timothy, takes him with him, is ministers with him, walks with him, disciples him, and then sends him out to disciple others. And the application, application means, okay, so what? If that's what the text says, what's that mean for my life? What was the application of everything that we looked at last week? Excellent, Rob. That we need a Paul. We need somebody to walk alongside us. Sylvanus, we didn't talk about a whole lot about him. And we need to be pouring into somebody. I want, I want to hold that there for a second, and I want to add something that I don't think I really emphasized last week. Paul was somebody who was worth imitating. Do you know what that means? Paul was someone who was saying, I'm following Jesus no matter what, you follow me because I'm following Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. I'm following Jesus. Come follow me. Okay, so let me put this out there. I'm pumped that some of you are like, I need a, I need a Timothy. I need to find somebody to be my Timothy. Will you be my Timothy? Will you be my Timothy? You have already made a huge mistake. What's the huge mistake? Okay, even bigger than you don't have a Paul. We'll get to that in a second. Hold that thought. Are you following Jesus? Okay, that's... You need to be your own Paul. We're, we're grabbing at straws here. Lord, show me who you want for me to be my Timothy. Lord, I don't want to just do this off of personality. I don't want to just do this because I like this person and they like me. Lord, direct my steps to my Timothy. You see the difference? What are you doing with that versus, hey, what's up, Timothy? You want to be my Timothy? What's the difference? You're asking God. He's sovereign. He's wise. He knows you better than you. He knows the other person better than you. He knows ain't probably not good. Right? Okay, then we come back to the other thing. Is that person following Jesus? That's a good question to ask too, right? Oh, you're a psychopath. Sure, I'll be your Timothy. Do we see? Because uh, let me explain to you the goal of mentoring, the goal of making disciples is a disciple is one that is going to be like the teacher, one that is going to be like the rabbi. So if you have a Paul, your goal is to be like Paul. And Paul's goal is to be like Jesus. So all through this line is you being like Jesus. And if person is not going to help you be like Jesus, guess what? They don't need to be your Paul. Okay? They need a Paul to confront sin in their life. If you're going around looking for Timothys and you ain't got no Paul who is holding you accountable with the gospel, then you need to not be a Timothy. You need to not be looking for Timothys. Sorry, scratch what I just said. Don't go searching for Timothys. Okay? I am pumped that you are like, I, I need this in my life. Great. That's the point. It's called being a disciple. 
but the goal is to be like Jesus. Deal? In Italian, we say, capisce? That means, do you understand and are you going to apply it appropriately? And you say, capisce. Okay, so let me try that again. Capiche, capiche. Okay, let's move on. The, the, the big thing is, are they following Jesus? Paul didn't have to convince everybody that he was following Jesus. It was evident. It was evident in the fruit in his life. If you have to try to convince the Timothy that you have the stuff in your life that is worth following, then I would say hold off for a little bit. Okay? We good? We golden? Those of you that are new, you're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? What just happened? It's okay. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. That was all said in love and grace. Okay. What happens in Acts chapter 17? It's kind of a general question. Paul goes to another place. Has he gone to a lot of places? Yeah, what's he usually do in those places? Goes to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue? No, not that's where you find believers. Preach to the Jews. Okay, and, and as he's meeting with the Jews, what does he do? Yeah, he preaches the gospel to them, but what's he use in preaching the gospel to them? Which is, yeah, he uses the Old Testament and says, look, Isaiah 53, this whole thing, that's about Jesus. Hey, look, Psalm 22, this is about Jesus. Usually what would happen in the synagogue? What would happen after he does that? Blasphemy, like that, Lauren, good emphasis. Blasphemy, they come after him, right? And so what's Paul do after he's gone to the Jews? And they say, no thanks. Some of them respond. Goes to the Gentiles. He does this little action of like shaking the dust off. You're not even worthy of the dust on my sandals. I don't even want the dust that has been contaminated by your unbelief on my feet anymore. I'm going to the Gentiles. Dang, Paul. Okay, so Thessalonica. Or, if you're from actually Greek, or Greece, uh, it's called Thessaloniki, which is weird, so we're just going to call it Thessalonica, okay? Thessalonica, one of the largest cities in all of Greece, okay? Largest city. Paul goes to the urban areas. What happens in Thessalonica? Okay, so before you get all that, what's he do? Look, he does the same thing. This is one of the only places where it tells us how long that he's in the synagogue. So for three weeks, he's doing this thing in the synagogue, and there's two responses. What are the two responses? Response one is... Eh? Some were what? Persuaded. So think about this, okay? Paul goes into there, he reasons with them. What's that mean to reason with them? Okay, approach them at their level. 
What else? Argue. If you're persuaded, he's giving an argument, he's giving a presentation, they're having this back and forth conversation about it, probably a little bit heated conversation about it, and some of them were persuaded, which means they believe, they have a change of belief, oh, Jesus is the Messiah, okay, right on, okay, and then what's the other response? Jealous. That's weird. Jealous. Why would they be jealous? Okay, they're not getting the attention. And so what do they do? What, what we're going to do, what tonight's going to look like, we're going to do kind of a quick overview of 17, 18, and 19, and then we're going to come back for a look, and we're going to say, what is common in all of this? Okay, so we're going to fly through what you actually read this week, and then we're going to come back in and say, all right, what is, what is the common thread through all of these chapters, okay? So what the response is persuaded, others were jealous. What they do in their jealousy? What? They formed a mob and drug them out of town, kicked them out of town. Who else gets involved in this story, though? This guy named Jason, who's one of their followers, who's with them. He's kind of like the the proxy, he's the one that gets all the brunt of everything, okay? So they leave from Thessalonica and go where? Berea. My niece is named Berea. Awesome. Why? Because look at what it says about the Bereans. What's it say about them? They were more noble. Okay, so now we're adding not only two responses, but three. First response is, I'm persuaded Jesus is the Messiah. Believe, baptize, right on. Second response is, I'm jealous. I'm going to stir up strife. I'm going to stir up dissension. Why? Because of jealousy. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to get to Paul by getting at this guy, his disciple, and run Paul out of town. They run out of town. We've already seen that the gospel is being spread through suffering. Every time they encounter suffering, it moves them to another place where the gospel is then planted. Cool. Third response. In Berea, they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. Well, yeah, because they're not trying to kill them yet. What else does it say about them? They were what? They were eager. They were more noble-minded. Anybody's translation say that? More noble-minded and they were eager. What's that mean if you're eager? Ladies, if you run into a guy that's eager, what's that mean? Wait for it, wait for it. What, Stephanie? He's a little excited, okay. This is getting even more awkward every second that I stand here. He's persistent. We would call him a stalker, right? Or a creeper. I saw your Facebook status today. You had a creeper today at our gym. Awkward. If I need to talk to somebody, you just let me know, okay? He's like eight feet tall. I'm like five, seven. Okay, good. Totally lost my train of thought. Eager. If they're eager, if the Bereans are eager, what, what's that mean in the context here? They want to hear what he has to say, and after they hear it, what are they doing? 
examining the scriptures daily to see if it was so. Right? Not just like, oh, let's go to church on Sunday or Sabbath. Let's go on Saturday. Hear it and then go home. But it messed with them. They were noble-minded. They got their hands dirty in the text. And they said, is this for real? They examined it. Cool. Three responses. Persuaded, jealousy, stirring up strife, dissension, mobs, and examining the scriptures daily to see if it was so. Man, I'm praying for some Bereans. I'm praying that the Lord turns us all into Bereans. We got some, we got some jealous mob stirring up people. We need to get rid of them and rebuke them in the name of Jesus. We've got some people that are starting to be persuaded, but let's move the persuaded on to the, are you a Berean? Are you examining the scriptures daily, hello, Acts challenge, to see if it was so? That is why there's a special place in my heart for Berea, my four-year-old little niece. What a cool name. What a cool legacy she has. She's a little snot right now, but (laughs) hopefully one day she gets there, okay? So we got Thessalonica, Berea. What happens as they're examining the scriptures? Did you catch this? Yeah, the Thessalonica. They, they do what? Yeah. They are so jealous and so adamant about stopping Paul and this business of the gospel. They leave Thessalonica... They come down to Berea and try to stir up strife in Berea. Whenever the gospel is going out, guess what there's always going to be? Dissension. People trying to stir up strife. You get that? You know that? Yeah. Okay, so we got Berea. Then what happens? Lots of people believe in, in Berea. Okay, let me give you a little hint right here too. Ladies, uh, Luke loves the ladies. Luke is the author of Acts. It's like part two of the Gospel of Luke. He loves the ladies. He's always pointing out that there were women with Jesus. He was always pointing out that there are women who come to faith in Jesus because of the Gospel. And he does that right here in verse 12. That there are a lot of prominent Greek women coming to know Jesus. So this idea of a feminist gospel or a chauvinist gospel, that the gospel is only going to the guys, that's a wrong, wrong understanding. These women are coming to know. You were already introduced to Lydia, the lady who came to know Jesus. They didn't even have enough people in their town to have a synagogue, so they met by the river and there were some ladies there having a little Bible study Somebody comes and shares the gospel with them and they get saved. Pretty cool. You're also introduced this week to a lady named, remember her name? Priscilla. And what's her husband's name? Awkward. Aquila. She's always mentioned first. It's kind of interesting. Kind of cool. Okay? So, some of them believe. They're stirring up the crowds. Paul leaves and he goes to Athens. Thessalonica. Athens, huge cities. What happens in Athens? They're worshiping idols. He looks around, 
and he's troubled by all of the idols that he sees. Okay, what else happens? Mars Hill. How many of you, uh, your uh, Bibles actually say Mars Hill? Look at verse 19. What's it say? Yeah, you're like, I don't know. It starts with an A, right? Okay, King James Version, it says Mars Hill. They bring him to the place of where they worship this god, the god of war. Mars, the god of war. So this isn't like a peaceful, like, hey, come with us. It's a, you better come and defend what you're talking about. So he comes, and what happens at Mars Hill? Okay, he, he introduces them to the unknown God. He kind of strokes their ego a little bit. Oh, you're so religious. And then tells them about the unknown God. We'll come back and talk about Athens in a second. After he's finished at Athens, what's he do? We're on into 18 now. He goes to Corinth, another huge city. What happens in Corinth? Say what? Okay, that's where we first meet Priscilla and Aquila. What else? They're Italian, by the way. Even in Rome, the persecution, verse 1, has gotten to Rome. Where not only is it coming from the Jews, it's also coming from the Roman Emperor Claudius. Again, sovereignly spreading the gospel. Verse 3, what's Paul do? Y'all got to work with me. I'm like deaf, it feels like. Huh? They made, okay, they made some tents. Good. What else? He stayed with them, what? For a period of time. Does he do his normal thing? Goes to the synagogue, look at verse 4. What, what's it say he does in the synagogue? He reasons with them. I love the book of Isaiah because it basically is like this. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And it goes, I mean, it's this reasoning back and forth. You say this, but God says this. If you look at Paul, if you look at the book of Romans, it's awesome. It's this huge diatribe of you say this, but I say this. Jesus did this too. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said in the law, uh, everyone who don't commit adultery. Well, I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. So he's doing this reasoning back and forth with them as he goes to the synagogue. What happens in Corinth? He's ran out, shake the dust off. Goes to the Gentiles. There's this guy named Crispy. Verse 8. They're believing and being baptized. What happens? He's there for a year and six months. Pretty long time. What happens in verse 12? He has a vision in verse, verse 9. And then he gets, hey, don't be silent, speak up. Verse 12, 
he gets in front of the proconsul, basically the guy in charge. If you remember chapter 9, verse 15, when Saul was called, God said, I've appointed him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to be before kings and princes. This is the fulfillment of that. He's before the leaders here. And what happens? Yeah, what am I going to do to him? So he stays there a little bit longer, then he goes to... Those of you that are studying with us, this is why it says, okay, underline the locations or put them out in the margin so you can see where he's going from one place to another, okay? Where's he go? Okay, Syria, then he finally makes it to Ephesus, verse 19. He's in the synagogue, and what's he do with them? Yep, he reasons with them. He, they ask him to stay longer, but he says no. So he goes on to Caesarea and Antioch, the, one, the church that got this whole thing started. And then what happens in chapter 19? I know we're covering a lot, but we're going to come back up for air in just a second. What happens in chapter 19? We've been talking a lot about locations. What's the location here? Okay, so he went to Ephesus once, left. Then he comes back to Ephesus. There's this other guy named Apollos. He was first at Corinth, and they're, they're back and forth, back and forth. What happens in Ephesus? Yeah, there's this whole weird thing between John's baptism and then the baptism of, of Jesus, like the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you baptized for repentance, but that was before, you're missing a huge aspect of what this is about, the gospel and Jesus, how you can repent. And so that's when the Holy Spirit comes to Ephesus, all right? So the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel is transplanted there, it goes forth, what happens at Ephesus? Pardon? Holy Spirit, okay. Want to elaborate on that today a little bit? Okay, that whole thing, they spoke in tongues. And they were baptized. We've seen that all throughout Acts. You come to know the Lord, and then you're baptized. Some of you have made the decision, uh, I'm going to get baptized. Right on. What else? He went to the synagogue and reasoned again. In fact, he was there for how long? Yep, okay. What else? Lots of what? Healings. Yeah. Started holding lectures, not in the synagogue, but somewhere else, in the school of the guy with the T. And how long does he do that? Two years. So three months plus two years. Okay, he's there for a long time. Usually that's unheard of with Paul. He's usually in and out. So he's there with this church for a really long time. And this weird, like, hocus-pocus stuff happens. What's the weird stuff that happens in Ephesus? Right on.
That's crazy. Ephesus, if you don't know, all of these cities are just surrounded by idols. Everything that is in these cities is idolatry. In this time period, the way in which you worshipped idols was usually sexually. Especially in the city of Ephesus, they, had, um, they worshipped the goddess Diana. Um, her picture was basically the head of a woman and about 10,000 breasts. That was her picture. All throughout the city, her image was everywhere. Temple prostitutes included men, women, boys, girls, animals. It was disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. It was also a city that was based on demonic activity. Um, the book of Deuteronomy says that behind every idol there's a demon. There was a lot of demonic activity in the place of Ephesus. Okay? We can see here that in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, the sole reason why these people wanted the Holy Spirit, they wanted to add power. They wanted power to do the things that Paul was doing. What was Paul doing? Miracles. Like what? Casting out demons. What else? Talk real loud. I'm borderline. Can't hear you. Curing diseases. Paul comes in on the scene and is like, the power is in Jesus. Look what I can do. With all these people that were looking for power, and even his handkerchief, this is why on those crazy channels they say, come, put your hand on the TV, we'll pray for you and send you a handkerchief. Totally misapplying and misinterpreting this text right here. Okay? Anything else in this text? He wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Jerusalem too. Something about Macedonia and Achaia and all those things. Okay. What is going on in this text in, in uh, Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Athens, and Ephesus? What's the common theme that's going on in, this, in these cities? He's reasoning at the synagogues, preaching, persuading the gospel. Some listen, some don't. What else is going on? Wherever the gospel goes, it's met with resistance. If you go back through Paul's missionary journeys, there's like, initially there's this, oh yeah, we like the gospel. And then as he keeps going through it, there's major opposition. What else? Let me read this to you, those of you that were studying this week with us. Um, when we looked at Thessalonica, we jumped over to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let me read a little bit of this to you. This was um, the smallest amount of time, about three months in some people's estimation, um, up to a year after Paul had been to Thessalonica. He wrote, where am I going? I can't find it. Um, he wrote this letter to this church, Thessalonians. And it is a phenomenal chapter. Go to chapter one if you have it. Um, Paul writes to the church that is already there. The gospel is still spreading. And he says, I give thanks to you, verse 2, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. That's cool. The gospel's just come to them, and they already have a work of love, labor of 
or you know what I'm trying to say, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Um, verse 5, the gospel didn't just come to you in word only, but the gospel came to you in word, in, what else? In power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Okay, so the gospel came to them, yes, in word, yes, in power, yes, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Look at some of the things that happened as a result of it. Um, they know, again, what kind of men they proved to be. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, verse 6. That's what we're talking about of make sure the person that you're thinking is going to be your Paul, that they love Jesus and are, want to become more like Jesus. Like that's priority number one in their lives is I want to be like Jesus. Look at verse 6, though, the end of it. Having received the word, the one they had with power and Holy Spirit conviction, having received the word in much tribulation. Now from Acts, what do we know? Acts 17, what was the tribulation going on? Yeah, that was the whole town where Jason was brought out into the streets, beaten, and that whole deal happened. In the Holy Spirit, full conviction, in, received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's crazy. So that, as a result of the word coming to them, them receiving it in tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, as a result of that, they became an example to all believers. Look at what they're doing in verse 8. In the midst of their persecution, the word of the Lord is sounding forth from them. The gospel is sounded forth. So they heard it, they received it, they're sounding it forth in not only in Macedonia, Achaia, but every place your faith towards God has gone. Verse 9, for they, the people who are talking about this church, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you. And then look at this. This is the key. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us hallelujah, from the wrath to come. What's going on in Thessalonica? What's the, what's the setting of what the city's like? Okay, note to self, if they turn to idols to serve a living and true God, that means that there's a lot of... There's a lot of idol worship. Okay, so that's Thessalonica. Paul comes to Athens. What grieves him? The idol worship. What chapter is that? Yeah, 17, go to verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy. Oh look, Timothy's still with him, still has this on-the-job training. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being what? Troubled, some of yours say what? Distressed, provoked, paroxino, irritated, enraged. His spirit was enraged as he was looking at the idols around him. 
Then you go over to um, Acts chapter 19. We'll skip Corinth. Just so you know, Corinth was crazy. You should already know that. But it was a crazy place. The same idol worship, the same sexual stuff. All of that was going down there. You get to Ephesus. What are some of the things going on in this city? Look at what they do. Yeah, the demonic activity. Verse 18. Um, the whole evil spirit thing become overpowered. This was known both to Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also, notice that. It's not the name of Paul being magnified. It's the name of who? Jesus. If you're into this whole like people casting out demons on the TV and all that, just give it the litmus test of who's being magnified here. Is Jesus being magnified or is this person being magnified? Whose coat pockets are being filled here? Jesus's for the sake of the gospel or this guy who lives in this luxury house in Houston, Texas by the name of Benny Hinn? Verse 19. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began doing what? Burning them. Why would they do that? Ephesus was also known for their library. Why would they burn these books? That, well, yeah, they're sorcery. Excellent. They began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of cash. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, does the word, does that, does your text say the word repentance there? Looking for a yes or a no. Okay. The answer is no, it doesn't, unless you have the Rainbow Bible. Okay. What do you see right here that shows you what repentance is? Well, yeah, their actions. What are they doing? I'm worshiping idols, bowing down to demons, worshiping demons, practicing sorcery, practicing all these things. The gospel comes and, well, I still got my sorcery books. That God over there was good. I'm going to add the one true God to all these other gods that I worship. Is that what they do? No. What do they do? They radically turn from those and it even cost them something. They burn the books they burn the idols, they burn all the stuff that represents their old way of life, and they worship God. And what happens? The word of the Lord is growing, is multiplied, is going forth. What happened at Thessalonica? They turned from idols to serve a living and true God and wait for his son to come from heaven who will save us from the wrath of come, wrath to come. How does all this fit together? Idols. Are there idols around us? Everybody knows that. I mean, we've been to Sunday school. Yeah, there are idols. What are idols? Anything that gets in the way of God. Anything that threatens the preeminence of God in your life is an idol. Now wait, I mean, 
that could be, when I think of idols, I think of going to India, or I think of, I think of, um, yeah, I mean, my trip to India where kids are brushing their teeth in the same water that they are going to the bathroom in, I mean, abject poverty, and yet you go into their house and there is this golden overlaid shrine to this God that they're trying to appease, and then they have their other shrine, and then all these idols around. That's what I think of when I think of idolatry. Any of y'all have any shrines in your house? No? You have what? It's called a TV? Girl, no, you didn't. What do you mean? Okay. Pointing out somebody else's idols, not your own. Okay. I do that a lot too. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was listening to, to something, somebody talked about this recently, and they said that. They said that this lady from India, um, this guy went to India, was preaching the gospel, and said, hey, will you ever go back to the United States? Well, no, I can't stomach all of their idols. And this lady lives in a culture where there's idols everywhere. They make sacrifices to idols. They sacrifice chickens. They won't eat cows because it's their grandma, but they'll sacrifice their grandma to the god. Weird. Okay? But she doesn't want to come back to America because there's all of these idols. He said, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Your God, she said, is your stomach. Your God is your stomach. You have all of these restaurants all around you. You spend tons of money at these restaurants. In your house, you go into your living room and you build shrines around the altar of your TV. It's crazy. That's like, ooh. But still, I think we're missing a little bit of what an idol is. So I want to show you this clip. Uh, I don't have the little clicker, so go click two, two things for me. No, it's, it's in that PowerPoint presentation or keynote. in a group of uh, five or six people real quick, and we'll shut this down with some, uh, some application of what's this look like in our lives, okay? So five or six people, go for it real quick. Introduce yourself to the person, say hi. All right, perfect. Uh, make sure that if there's someone that's new in your uh, group, give them a little hello, say hi to them, make them feel a little welcome. If somebody you don't recognize, you haven't seen before, introduce yourself. Even if you go through the, I always forget people's names, so don't be offended if I don't remember your name. Though I've met you 800 times. All right. And cease, okay? Here we go. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the topic of idolatry, idolatry is discussed more in Scripture than heaven, more in Scripture than hell. It's a pretty huge issue. In fact, in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy, 
when God was trying to reclaim a nation and get them to get that he loves them and is jealous for them and that they're about to go into the promised land to take over, he doesn't give them the battle strategy. He gives them the watch your heart. What I want you to realize is that when we worship idols, not if, when we worship idols, it is a heart issue. In our hearts, we say that something else besides God is going to bring me blank. Something else besides God is going to bring me hope. So I'm going to offer myself as a human sacrifice on the altar of my job bringing me hope. I'm going to offer myself, my body, my time, my emotions, my energy on the altar of finding my worth through that guy or girl. Even though I know what God says, I'm going to disregard, I'm going to believe the top three sins. Every time you sin, these three things are involved. Idolatry, unbelief, and pride. Every sin you make, idolatry, unbelief, pride. Idolatry because you're saying, okay, God, I see what you say, but I don't believe you, so I'm going to make myself God. I'm God. Unbelief, God, I don't believe what you say is really true, so I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'm God. Pride, God, I'm better than you. I'm going to believe what I believe. I'm God. Okay? So, within your group, real quick, what I want you to do is I want you to talk about, we we had a great picture of some idols that we've seen around us uh, with this ABC interview. Crazy that they allowed that all to be on there. What are some idols that you see that are predominant, not necessarily in everyone else's life, but in your life. Everybody's like, ooh, this is awkward. What are some idols that you see in your life? Please know, I know this. I don't know if you realize this or not. I know that you have a tendency to worship idols because you're breathing and you're human. Even if you're a believer, you have a tendency to replace truth about God with believing a lie. That's why Colossians, that's why Ephesians says, abstain, flee, run from idols. See Christ, run from idols. Okay? So, go for it. What are some idols that you see? We'll just say, well, my friend has a problem. And we know that when you say friend, you're talking about you. If that makes you feel better, talk about it that way. Okay? Go. In some ways, idols are described like this, where God gives a good thing and we turn the good thing into a God thing, and it becomes a bad thing. Let me say that again. God, the giver, gives us something that is good. We take the good thing and we say, oh, that's God. Not big G-O-D, but little G-O-D, idol, and then it becomes a bad thing. Let me give you an example. Marriage is a good gift. It's a good gift. But we can take a good gift and make it a bad gift when we worship the gift rather than the giver of gifts. 
Romans 1 is like idolatry 101 for you. If you don't know about this, Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter, there's these deadly exchanges that take place. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. Every idol is something that is good gone amok. If you worship at the, at the altar of sexual idolatry, you're taking something that God gave as good and you're perverting it into something that is bad. You're taking a good gift and making it bad. If you worship at the altar of relationships where you have to have so many people and you get your significance from relationships and not from the giver of relationships, you're taking a good gift and making it bad. Do you see how we do that? Let me, let me see, read some of this to you um, and then we're done. If you still have your Bibles out, look at how Paul deals with this in Athens, in uh, Acts chapter 17. Look at how Paul deals with this in Athens, okay? In Athens, verse uh, 17, chapter 17, verse 17, look at what he does in verse 16. In his spirit, he, he, had, he was antagonized by the idols. So question, with the idols that you see even prevalent in your own life, what's that do? What's the emotion there? Is it like, yeah, whatever, everybody wrestles with that. I'm a guy, I mean, come on. Or, I'm a girl, of course I'm going to be that way. Everybody's that way. I just like to shop. What do you run to for significance, for worth, for value, for affirmation? See, you can take a good thing Make it a God, and it becomes a bad thing. Look at how Paul dealt with this, though. Verse 16, he was messed with. I mean, antagony. Agony. Sorry, that antagony is not even a word. He was provoked as he observed the city full of idols. But does he run off and start his own commune of in a monastery and a convent so people aren't affected by idols? What's he do in the following verses? He engages the culture that is worshiping idols with the gospel. Look at what he does. Verse 16, he mourns the idolatry. Verse 16, he observes the culture. Verse 17, he begins to reason with the culture. I see you're very religious. I see you do this. I see you do that. They took him and brought him to Mars Hill. He's talking about the resurrection. They thought he was talking about a new God called Anastasia, the resurrection. They thought he was presenting to them a new God. Look at what he keeps saying, though. He doesn't just, he doesn't just reason with them and say, oh, you've got this God, that's cool. You've got this God, that's cool. Look at what he does in verse 30. He is intense. He, he tells them about the gospel. He tells them about God's plan for the nations. Verse 30, 
he confronts the idols in their culture. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should, what? Repent. Thessalonica, it looked like turn from idols to serve a living and true God. In Ephesus, it looked like stop worshiping demons and sorcery and all those things. Burn it, get rid of it, repent, and the gospel will go forth. Repent, verse 31, because, this is why you repent, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having proof, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer, but others said, we want to hear you again. Some, verse 34, men joined and believed. He confronts the idols. Let me read some of this to you. Every culture, gender, class, city, field of work, etc. has its own idols. Idolatry is anything I look at and say, if I have that, my life has value. If I have a wife, if I have a husband, if I have a job, if I have, then I have value. Anything that is so central to your life that you feel that you cannot live without it. I have to have control. I have to have status. I have to have worth. I didn't get it from my dad, so I've got to go to other men to find worth. I didn't have it from my dad, gentlemen, so I go to other men to be initiated into what it means to be a man. Idolatry is making a good thing an ultimate thing. Because Paul saw idols everywhere, he was really an effective preacher. Like Paul, we need to discern, expose, and destroy idols in order to preach the gospel. It cannot be the gospel unless it shatters idols. It cannot be the gospel. Personal idols, religious idols, cultural idols. Personal idols are money. Money can be your idol, especially in the business world. Everyone recognizes this as the idol of Wall Street. All over New York City, child sacrifice is going on. If you want to succeed, you have to sacrifice your family. Ladies, there is a lie that is being peddled in the universities across the nation that says, if you want to be equal with men, you've got to sacrifice your family, put your kids in daycare, and let somebody else raise them. It is a lie. It defeats the calling that God has given to you as a woman. Yes, you can still be successful in the business world, but not at the expense of your children being raised to know and fear the Lord. If you want to succeed, you have to sacrifice your family. If you're going to get the money and the power, you have to sacrifice your children. Jobs are set up this way. How do you do your job without bowing down to it? How do you demythologize money only by living in light of the gospel? I don't need that. I have unlimited worth through Jesus. You want me to work till when? I'm not going to sacrifice my family because of the gospel. Well, romance is another idol. This is when you look at your lover or your spouse for worth. Only they can make you feel valuable. You cannot lose this person or else you lose your value. People who have a good marriage must constantly fight this idol. 
constantly looking to Jesus to find their satisfaction in Jesus. People who are in dating relationships have such a struggle with this because they even say the lie of, if you love me, well, I've got to do this in order to keep them. So I've got to go further than I would ever imagine going. Why? Because that affirmation is an idol. An idol. So we do things we never thought we would do. Self-expression is an idol in the artistic community. Children can be idolized to find your significance and meaning in your children. Unless you understand where the idols are in your life, you won't be able to help people. As Luther said, there's a reason the first ten commandments is about, the first of the ten commandments is about adultery. You never break commandments two through ten without breaking number one. You never murder somebody unless you've already gone through the process of, I have idols. God is not God, so I'm going to murder. The, the, I was reading a lot about this over the past couple weeks. Again, this has just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And the one that got to me the most was coveting. You have broken commandment number one and two, God is God, no idols. And you've said, I want what you want and I'm mad at you because you have it. That's coveting. Because stuff is your idol, not God being God. Religious idols, truth can be your idol. Are you resting in the righteousness of your own doctrine rather than the work of Jesus? Gifts can be an idol. You can mistake spiritual gifts for spiritual fruit, especially if you're successful in discipling others. Morality is a religious idol. It's typical for Christians to feel that God loves them and will bless them because of their moral record. That's so not the gospel. You have no righteousness at all. Cultural idols, ideology. Let me read this and we'll close with this. This is what Luther said. If you want the whole quote, it's on the Acts Challenge for today. He's talking about idols and how idols is a heart issue. It reveals the deeper issues in the heart. It's you, you, yes, you bow down on the altar of sex or pornography or alcoholism, but what's the deeper issue? Idolatry. You want to find worth, significance, acceptance through those other things except and not God. So this is what he says. Thus it is for all idolatry, for it consists not merely in erecting an image and worshiping it, but rather in the heart which stands gaping at something else and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils and neither cares for God nor looks to him for so much good as to believe that he is willing to help. Ask and examine your heart diligently and daily. And you will find whether it cleaves to God and God alone. If you have a heart that can expect of him nothing but what is good, especially in want and distress, and that moreover renounces and forsakes everything that is not God, then you truly have the one true God. If, however... On the contrary, it cleaves to anything else of which it expects more good, more help than of God and does not take refuge in him and him alone, but in adversity actually flees from him, then you have an idol, another God, not the one true God. The same message of Paul is the same message for us today. Repent. Tear down the idols. What is crazy about this is, 
I can be blind to my idols, which is why I need Alex to help me with the gospel and say, you know, I'm seeing this in your life. Is this an idol? Are you looking to Jesus and forsaking idols, like Colossians says, seeking the things above where Christ is seated? Or are you going after idols? See, I'm blind a lot of times. But through a relationship with somebody else, I can help expose idols just like Paul did to the church at Athens. That's what we need, folks. In your Paul to Timothy relationship, that's what we need is this is an, you know, the, here's the gospel and it looks like you're looking to these things to find worth. That's not the gospel. In the Old Testament, they had to smash the idols. They had to tear them down, grind them into the dust, and spread them out. In Ephesus, they took all the books, and they burned them. Would that we would have that fervor against the idols in our lives. Would that we would be like the Bereans. That's what I'm praying for for y'all. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as the one true God. The one who is creator, who created and formed everything, and therefore you own everything. Father, forgive us where we worship and serve the creator. We don't do that. We worship and serve the creature. Where we take the good gifts that you've given, because you are the father of lights who gives all good things. Forgive us when we take the gifts that you give and worship and bow down and sacrifice our time, our energy, our talents, our gifts, our emotions. We sacrifice everything on the altar of that gift. Instead of taking our time, our talents, our energies, everything, every fiber, every breath that we have and offering it to you. Lord, forgive us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the cross shatters all of those lies. It shatters the lie that we have to find worth and significance in another person. Or that we have to find worth and significance in a thing. The cross shatters that because of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he alone is our hope, that he is our anchor. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to see the idols in our lives and give us the grace to smash them and allow the Holy Spirit to develop devotion and simplicity of faith in our lives. Lord, I thank you for these individuals. I ask that you would do something like you did in Athens in our group. I ask that you would change the culture out there through people that are in here that see the idols in their life and see how the gospel is hindered in their life because of idols and that then they would be a catalyst of doing the same in their workplaces, their families, their communities, even in our church. Lord, I thank you for exposing idols in my life and I ask that you would continue to do that. I thank you for the men that you've placed in my life to constantly remind me of the gospel and to smash the idols in my life. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of that possible. We thank you for grace and mercy and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.